So Ephesians chapter 4 is where we're going to be, if you want to open your Bibles there. If you're just joining us, we are currently in the midst of a a study entitled Reliance Values, and we're looking at the eight values that shape and inform everything that we do uh, as a church. Uh, Values are critically important to every organization. Here's why. Because what we value shapes what we do, and what we do establishes our culture. And so far as a church, we've looked at three of our values at Reliance Church. We value the Word of God. We trust God's Word as the only foundation for truth and our only hope for change. Another one of our values at Reliance Church, we value prayer. We work like everything depends on us, but we pray like everything depends on God because it does. And thirdly, at Reliance Church, we value the leading of the Holy Spirit. We change the world one life at a time through the power of the Holy Spirit who flows through men and not through methods. And so these are the three values that we've already looked at. If you've missed those, I would encourage you to tune in online and, and, uh, and uh, hear those teachings. But today, we're going to examine our next value together at Reliance Church. We value unity. We are a diverse family that sticks together in a world that's falling apart. And our world is falling apart, isn't it? I mean, by any measure, you tune into the news, you, you tune into social media, for crying out loud, you just drive your car around town and you will find out that we are a world falling apart. I was picking up my granddaughter, Abby, at the preschool the other day and, and the, the exit of the preschool, you can go left or right. And of course, if you go left, you're going across the lane of traffic there. It's on Paba Road. And this, this poor gal in front of me, she pulls out. She's got plenty of time on both sides. But the king of the road who's coming down decides that he is going to... Actually, it was a girl that was driving down, and she just decides to lay on her horn as this person pulls out. And I'm thinking, gee whiz, sorry, King Farouk, you know, it's your road. How dare she drive on it, you know? Man, the world is falling apart. There's just ugly division everywhere. And, you know, it's not only is it getting worse by the day, but, well, Jesus said it would be that way, didn't he? Here's what he said. He said, sin... In the last days, sin will be rampant everywhere, and the love of many will grow cold. And that's a serious problem, because Jesus said that the two most important commandments in the whole Bible, number one, that we should love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and secondly, that we should love our neighbor as ourself. And Jesus said concerning the church, concerning believers, Christians, he said this, that the defining characteristic of being a Christian is that we would love each other. He said this, he said, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if, conditional word there, if you have love for one another. The psalmist declared this, behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. He says, unity is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. He continues, unity is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. In other words, what the psalmist is saying there is is that loving unity is fresh, it's anointed, and it's alive. Now, with that being said, let me ask you guys a question. How many of you have either experienced or know of a church that's been through a split? 
Can see a show of hands? Look at that. Well, that's problematic, isn't it? If it's true that loving unity serves as the unique identifier of Jesus Christ's disciples, and we know that it is, we heard his words on it, then the question comes up, why on earth does unity seem to be in such short supply? What's wrong, What's wrong with the church? What's wrong with the Christians? Why is it that we have to work so hard to maintain unity? Well, here's a simple answer. It's because unity does not come naturally to us. Flat out does not. Here's what James said, James chapter 4. He said, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, and so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, and so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. In other words, what James is saying is that the problem with unity isn't out there, it's in here. The problem with unity is inside of each and every one of us. Because the inherent thing about our sin nature is that we want to go first. Here's our attitude. You can go first right after me, right? That's our attitude. Now, this is not learned. It's not a learned behavioral trait. It's not an environmental issue. People who, you know, talk about child development and, and, and all, the, there is this, this ongoing argument that says, well, you know, the human behavior is a condition. It's a product of our environment. And I say, that is flat out not true because you never had to pull your two-year-old aside and say, no, 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 stop sharing your toys. No, no, you, you grab your toy back and you say, that's my toy, and then you hit them over the head with it. Now, Johnny, do that. You never have to teach your kids that. I, Brenda and I have, have two of our grandkids. We've got nine grandkids. We've got two of them that are staying with us, four-year-old and a seven-year-old. For 15 days, they're staying with us. Their parents went to Italy, and we got the kids. No, it's good, and it's bad, right? The, the, the beautiful part of it is we absolutely love our grandkids. They're amazing. The bad part about it is, is that, well, they can act like four- and seven-year-olds. I took them to see my mom, and, uh, and we were, it was just going to be special time. We thought, oh, gosh, we got the kids. We got all these reward, reward points. Let's go down to Torrance, get a hotel room, let the kids see grandma, great-grandma and all, and... So we go over to my mom and dad's house, and my mom, bless her heart, she, back in the day, bought every single beanie baby that there was, some of them two or three times. She's got oceans of beanie babies just laying around. And so, well, it makes good now because you bring the grandkids by, and she gives them away. So she gives both of the kids three beanie babies apiece. And wouldn't you know it, they fight over one of the, of the, the six. They, they both want this one. And these kids, I mean, they just, they were possessed by Satan. I mean, they're just like <laughs> demonic, just losing their mind. Like I was just mortified. Brenda's so embarrassed. We're like, nobody gets a beanie baby, you know, get in the car, you know, kind of thing. It's just horrible. We have a fundamental problem with unity and the problem is us. Now it's not immune to, to four-year-olds and seven-year-olds and two-year-olds. We see it in adult behavior all the time. The Bible shows it. I mean, you look in John chapter 21 and here you got Peter, and he's totally blown it, by the way. Denied the Lord the whole bit, thinks he's a failure. Jesus, in his grace and mercy, shows up, restores Peter. It's awesome. 
And then what's he do? He, as he's restoring Peter, he starts telling him, all right, look, now here's, you're going to suffer for the gospel. You're going to suffer for my namesake, so here's what's going to go on. And he starts to share with Peter all the stuff that's going to go down. What's Peter do? Does Peter say, oh, thank you, Jesus, for, for forgiving me, of denying you. Thank you for restoring me. Thank you for entrusting me with this great and awesome privilege of suffering for my king. No, he turns around, he looks at John, he's like, well, what about him? Right? It's just totally our nature. It's like, oh, God lavishes out all this stuff on us, and then we want to turn around and go, well, wait, why, why does he get the beanie baby? What's going to happen with him? You know? And Jesus' answer, shut up. You know? Well, that's my paraphrase. Jesus is just basically, well, what Jesus said is even better. He's like, that's none of your business. What I want to do with him is none of your business. You follow me, right? So what do we need to do? Well, James continues. He says, therefore, James 4, verses 7 and 8, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. In other words, what James is saying here is, in effect is, look, you're divided because you're divided from God. And so what he says is you have to first be united to Jesus. And that's what happens. We've got to first hook up and be united with, with Jesus. And then he's the one that's going to enable us to be in unity with one another. And that's what Jesus says. You follow me. Peter says to us, you follow me. Well, all of this, to, to lead up here to Ephesians chapter 4, is pre- precisely where we land now. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Right? So what, what happens here, this theme, the, 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 this section of, of the book of Ephesians, sort of the, the big idea of this is how Christians should walk in the church. And we see in verse 1 that, that Paul says, look, Christians should walk worthy of their calling. And then in verses 2 through 6, he's talking about how we should walk in loving unity. And that word worthy in verse 1, we might think as we read that, you got to work worthy of your calling, that it's something that we do to keep up our end of the bargain. Right? You think of worthy and it's like, are you worthy and, you know, are you keeping up your end of the bargain kind of deal? That, that's, not the, that's not it at all. You see, Paul has spent the previous three chapters in the, in the book of Ephesians and basically there in the previous three chapters in awesome detail what he's pouring out, what he's talking about is all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. That freely by his grace the Lord has lavished out upon us just these amazing things. And you know, he, t- he talks about in Ephesians 2 how we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins. Ain't nothing you can do when you're dead, that it's God who did this work. He goes on to talk about how, you know, by grace we've been saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's not the works that we have done so that we can't have, we don't have nothing to boast in. 
He, he says that we're God's workmanship, that we're created in Christ Jesus for good works that he's prepared before and that we should walk in. This word workmanship means poem. It means work of art. You're God's work of art. He talks about how we've obtained this incredible inheritance in, in, in Christ and we have just all of these lavish blessings that we have. And so with Paul emphasizing all of that, Right, And in light of that, basically what he's saying now as we turn a quarter in chapter 4 is that all of that should motivate us to walk responsibly to God in loving unity. It's a response to what he's already done. If I can use a negative example, moms and dads, think about your kids. Someday they wake up and they're just stuck on stupid and what, it, it, what happens is your kids, it seems like their sole mission that day is to get a spanking and just to get some time out and just to have their life ended by you. And they just start off the day pushing your buttons, right? And, it, and it's, just, it's just building up, it's building up, it's building up. And then the Mount Vesuvius mom just finally blows and says, everybody out of the pool, you're done. And what has happened? It's a response to what has been poured into it. Well, in a great way, what Paul is saying is that the Lord has poured so much into us of love and mercy and grace and blessing and future hope of inheritance that this should motivate us to a loving response, that we should love him and that we should love one another. Now, Paul said something very similar to the Philippians. I'll throw this on the screen for you. Philippians 2, verses 1 and 2. He said, therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, he says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Paul uses this word if here four times, and he uses it in a rhetorical sense. It's like saying if you know, he's saying if there's any consolation, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, and so on. And, and you, he's saying it rhetorically. It's like saying, you know, if water's wet, if rocks are hard, if fire is hot. The point being, of course it is, right? And so what Paul's saying here is because we have the consolation of Christ, because we have the comfort of his love, because we have the fellowship of his Spirit, because that we have the affection and the mercy of God extended through us to us through Christ Jesus, even by the way, when we don't deserve it. He says, because we've received these things, we now have the responsibility to be distributors of these things, to, to, to extend what we have received to other people. Which raises two questions. Number one, what exactly is unity? And secondly, how do we achieve it? So what is, what is unity? Let's start with a, def, a dictionary definition. Unity, according to the dictionary, is the state of being united or joined as a whole. Now we have a biblical example of what unity is as well. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 12. And there what he does is he uses our physical bodies as an example to describe how the church should be unified. Here's what he says, 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 18, he says, Our bodies have many parts. And God has put each part where he wants it. And how strange a body would, would it be if it had only one part? Yes, he says, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. And so unity in the church then is when we function interdependently. Just like your body functions interdependently. 
Every part does its part, and every part is interdependent on the other thing doing its part. We, we, we sang today about how the Lord gives us our breath, right? And, and what happens? What does your body do? You t- your lungs do their job. They take in that oxygen into them. And then what happens there? is that your blood has to do its job to go through the lungs and to pick up and be the trucking system of the oxygen that you've just taken in. So the body there, the lungs, it exchanges the carbon dioxide, which you exhale, and it picks up the oxygen, which it then takes, and it begins to travel through the circulatory system. And how is it traveling through the circulatory system? Your heart is doing its job. It's pumping the blood. And so the heart being the pump, the blood moving through, the deoxygenated blood eventually coming back uh, to the heart and then being pumped out to the lungs, and then the, the oxygenated blood eventually coming back to the heart and then being pumped out to the rest of your body, and air, your hands working together, your feet working together, you know, your, your brain telling your body to, to breathe in the first place. All of these things is the example Paul's giving. He's saying, look, the church is like that. Everybody plays a part. And it's vital. It's interconnected. Everybody's got to do their part. And so this leads us to the question, well, how do we do our part? How do we attain unity together? Well, Paul gives us a list here in verse 2 that we read. He says, you know, you need to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, verse 2, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. And so lowliness, the attitude is being humble. You have to have a humble spirit. Uh, you have to walk in gentleness. Not be harsh with one another, be gentle with one another. You've got to walk in long-suffering. You've got to be patient with each other. And he says you've got to bear with one another, right? And bearing with one another, by the way, literally, that word bearing with one another, the picture is, the attitude is, that you're, you're holding up against them. That's the best definition of that. Holding up against them. And here's what that means. That means that the people in the body of Christ are going to bug you. That's what it means. It's been said church would be a great place for one for all the people, right? And our best friends are at church, and some people that just really bug us are at church as well. And Paul is saying, look, you got to hold up against that. Not hold up against like just I'm done with them, or I'm going to write them off, or I'm just, you know, they're here and I'm not kind of thing. No, hold up against. It means that the inevitable irritants that the relationships are going to bring, Paul says you need to hold up against it. And notice that he adds, in love. You're going to hold up against that in love. The word, of course, is agape, which is unconditional love. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've heard the word agape. It means that it's a, it's a choice. It means it's a decision. It means that your response isn't predicated on your feelings or on even what that person deserves, but it's a pre, predetermined course of action that you're going to take. It's a choice that I'm going to love. And again, listen, Jesus said that agape... This unconditional love, it's the defining behavioral trait that marks us as Christians. John 13, 35, again, Jesus said, By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have agape, unconditional love for one another. In other words, it's not optional. So our love for one another and our unity with one another, listen, it's so important to the Lord that the night that he was betrayed... As he's in the garden, you know, sweating blood, praying to God, what does he say to God the Father? He says this, Now I am no longer in the world, but these, speaking of his disciples, are in the world, 
And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given to me, which by implication means the disciples and all the disciples who would follow, so you can put your name there as well, that, here it is, they may be one as we, as we are one. That was Jesus' prayer. That's his heart. And so we see there that this loving unity that he's called us to, it's of paramount importance to God. And that's exactly what Paul goes on to say in verse 3. He says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that word unity there, literally, it means one. That's what it means. Now, notice that Paul emphasizes this in the next two verses. What's he say? There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So over and over again, look, he's emphasizing you are one. You're, you, it's, it, it's one body, it's one baptism, it's one spirit, it's, it's one faith that we have. And just in case we don't get this, God repeats himself throughout the New Testament, just talking over and over and over and over and over again about this incredible one another needfulness of the family of God. The Bible says that we're to be at peace with one another, that we're to love one another, that we're to be devoted to one another, honor one another, live in harmony with one another. Accept one another, instruct one another, greet one another, have equal concern for one another. The Bible says that we are to serve one another in love, that we're to carry one another's burdens, that we're to be patient with one another, that we're to be kind and compassionate to one another, that we are to forgive one another. How many of you already at this point are going, I'm a blow it? Like, I'm, I, I'm, I'm commanded to do the, well, it goes on, submit to one another, bear with one another, admonish one another, encourage one another. And we're to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. That we're to pray for one another. That we're to live in harmony with one another. That we're to offer hospitality to one another. That we're to be humble towards one another. The Bible has a lot to say about this. It's pretty important to God. Peter summarizes the idea this way. He says, finally, all of you, be of one mind having compassion for, compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Now he says, finally, all of you, be of one mind. That word one mind, or that phrase one mind, it means literally to think the same thing. This is the exhortation. You as the body of Christ, you've got to think the same thing. Paul said something very similar to the Romans. He said, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. The attitude is, don't think more of yourself than you ought to think, but you know, consider others better than yourself and, and, and care for them. He says in Romans 15, verses 5 and 6, Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded towards one another, according to Jesus Christ, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, being of one mind, it doesn't mean that you lose your individuality. It doesn't mean that you can't be yourself. Unity does not necessarily mean uniformity, where we all got to walk in lockstep together, right? But it does mean that we are all in harmony, 
You, you listen to, to, you know, the folks harmonizing up here. And, and what makes harmony so beautiful is that they, they are in the same tone and the same pitch. You know, it's just, it's just they're, they're, they're complementing one another. Now, now, in harmony begs the question, in harmony with what? With the truth of God's word first, that's what. Unity has to be predicated on harmony with the truth of God's word. Turn, turn to John chapter 17 real quick with this thought in mind. Here in John chapter 17, where are you going? We're going to verse 21 to start. And, and we're going to read Jesus' prayer when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, hours before he went to the cross, when he prayed for unity, that you and I would have this unity with one another and with him. I'll pick it up in verse 20, John 17, starting in verse 20. He says there, I do not pray for these alone. He's talking about his disciples. And he's saying, I'm not just praying for them. I'm praying for all the disciples that are going to come after them. Again, you could write your name in the margin there that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was praying for you, praying for me. He says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That, verse 21, they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you have sent me. So there's this needfulness of unity. But notice the context in which Jesus says this. If you will back up with me to to verse uh, 17, as he's praying to God the Father, he says, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So he prays first that we would be sanctified. What is this word sanctification or sanctified? It it just means this continual growing, maturing process that God wants to do in us. And what Jesus is praying here is that, Lord, continue to grow them and to mature them by your word, that your word would be that, that true north that they would set their compass by. And, and so having prayed that, he says, uh, sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. As you have sent me to the world, I have also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. And then he says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, for you as well. That, verse 21, they all may be one as we are one. So you see that it is predicated there on God's word. Now listen, there is this this whole push in our day and age that, oh, we, we just all need to come together. We just all, you know, kumbaya, we just all need to come together. We just need to love one another and, you know, it's just, let's just all coexist. And you believe your system, and I'll believe my system, and let's just love each other. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, a chorus of ecumenical voices keep harping the unity tune. What they are saying is Christians of all doctrinal shades and beliefs must come together in one visible organization regardless of their beliefs. Such teaching is false, reckless, and dangerous. Truth alone must determine our alignments. Truth comes before unity. Unity without truth is hazardous. Our Lord's Prayer in John 17 must be read in its full context. Only those sanctified through the Word can be one in Christ. To teach otherwise 
is to betray the gospel. I taught this last Friday at the Bible College for their Friday lecture, and the Lord laid on my heart 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and so that's what I taught through. And if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians 5, this is where Paul is writing to the Corinthians to, uh, to chastise them a little bit in this particular section of the letter. And, uh, well, in a lot of sections of 1 Corinthians, he's got some words of chastisement for them because, you know, they're making some mistakes. Well, in chapter 5, the issue is this, that there is a guy in the church and the way it reads, basically, he's sleeping with his mom. Now, whether it's his stepmom, whether it's his mom, either way, it's Jerry Springer stuff, right? It is just yuck. And the attitude of the church as it's going down is they're puffed up about it, puffed up with pride about it. No doubt the attitude is, hey, you know what? We're tolerant. We're loving. Even, you know, all that's going on, but we've got such unity. We're so loving. Everything's cool. And and Paul's like, you're puffed up. You should have mourned. In other words, this thing, you, you know, you, you, got, you, you got your bumper stickers and your buttons and your parades and all about, the, about how tolerant you are and, and about how loving and accepting you are, and instead your heart should have broken for this guy. You know, you're not doing him any favors is what Paul was essentially telling the Corinthians. And so what he prescribed for them, he says, look, this guy needs to be put out of fellowship is what he needs to be put out of. Now, let me just make it clear. Paul, when he's talking to the Corinthians, he's not addressing the world. And he makes that clear a little bit later on in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. And he says, look, I'm not talking about the world now. I'm talking about your church. And I'm talking about a guy who calls himself a Christian. If I were talking about the world, Paul says, you, you, you would have to leave the world. In other words, the world's filled with people that are, that are, that are just forsaking the Lord, and they're just doing whatever floats their boat, and that's what the world does. And we so often, we want to start preaching to the world about symptoms, about, hey, you're, you're, you're doing this, and that's wrong, and this is wrong, and that is wrong. And it's not the symptom it's, it, it, that's killing them. What's killing them is they don't have Jesus. I mean, it's hard enough for Christians to act like Christians. And, and so the lost need Christ. What Paul is saying when he's talking to the Corinthians, he's saying, look, this guy, he claims to be a believer. And you guys, you're letting him stay and get all the perks and bennies from being in the church and being in the, being in the fellowship of the saints. But behaviorally, he wants to run with Satan. So he says, what you have to do with a person who's set on running with Satan, you have to say, look, here's the church And to be unified together in the church, we unify around God's word. And God's word calls us to this level of conduct. Not that we're perfect. That's not my point. It's certainly not Paul's point. But it is the point to say this is the standard through through which we got to tune our own guitars and everybody needs to be tuned to that standard. Right, And so, so this is the point that if this guy wants to run with Satan, Paul goes, let him go to Satan. Turn him over. Why? Well, he's not saying, you know what, fine, you want to be that way, you can go to hell. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, you want to run with Satan, then you go run with Satan. You don't enjoy the fellowship, the benefits, the the nurturing of the body of Christ. And what will happen is, our prayerful hope is that Satan will work you over, 
And you will come to your senses and you will decide to repent and come back into the unity of the fellowship of believers. It's the picture of the prodigal son. It's like, man, he wants to go be in the mud, just go let him be in the mud. And hopefully one day he'll wake up and go, man, I had it so much better in my father's house. And I don't know, maybe today that just the shoe fits. And for you, maybe you've been running and maybe you just need to hear that the prodigal son's father was longingly looking for him to return. And maybe today you need to return. But here's the point on unity. The point is, is that we have to, first of all, understand truth comes before unity. And true unity exists in alignment with the truth. It's been said, if you take 100 pianos and they each tune independently, they will not be tuned to, in tune with one another. But if they each tune to one tuning fork, they will automatically be in tune with one another. That's the idea here. It's precisely back in Ephesians chapter 4 what Paul means when he talks about the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We all focus on having the same mind. We all focus on being in tune with Jesus who modeled lowliness, who modeled gentleness, who modeled long-suffering and forbearance. Then the natural result is we're going to be in harmony with Jesus and we're going to model his actions. Again, to quote Charles Spurgeon, he says, divisions in churches never begin with those full of love to the Savior. In other words, listen, loving unity is first vertical and then it's horizontal. John said this, 1 John 4, 19, we love one another because he first loved us. Question of application today, something for you to write down, take a walk with. Are you living in unity and in harmony with God and with his people? Are you living in unity and in harmony with God and his people? Not most of his people, his people. Are there believers that you're estranged from? And, you know, Jesus said, as far as it concerns you, live at peace with all mankind. Is there something that you need to do today to be made right with that person? This whole idea of of the unity that we have vertically and the unity that we have horizontally, this is, by the way, what informs uh, our midweek small groups. This is, this is why we have them. This is why we encourage you to get plugged into them. Next week, we're going to talk about those. Just, you know, a midweek men's or women's group, home group, marriage group, parenting group, whatever it is. Because what happens there is both horizontal and vertical. You have the vertical connection with the Lord and the growing in love and unity with God. You study His Word, and then you have this horizontal Growth in love and in unity as you're all fellowshipping together, all tuning your piano as it were to that same tuning fork. The result is that unity and harmony that only God can bring. Yesterday, um, got to, you know, two of my grandkids, four-year-old, seven-year-old. Brenda had to go to a conference yesterday all day. How convenient, you know? <laughs> And so she was gone all day, like 14 hours. Me and the kids, we actually had a blast. We did a, we did a camp out in the backyard. And, and we, we built a fort back there. And, and I, I brought my, my kayak into the backyard, you know, and we were, you know, going down the river fishing, you know, from the kayak. In the mind of a four-year-old, my backyard was the Amazon, man. It was amazing. 
And then I, I say, guys, we gotta, we're going to catch fish. And when we catch these fish, we've got to barbecue them, right? So, so let's get the barbecue together. We've got the barbecue out there. I put the charcoal briquettes on it. You know, we're going to do it all rustic, like, you know, not, none of the gas barbecue thing for this. We're camping, man. So we do the charcoal briquette thing. And, and I'm arranging all of the charcoal briquettes, you know. You, you gotta, I'm telling Holland, you've got to arrange them in a geometric pattern to burn them. You know, he's like, I never would have thought of a pile, Papa, you know, because that's really what it is. You're just piling up all the briquettes. Why do you do that? Because they need to be together to burn, right? You, you have them separate, if any of them, and as they burn, a couple of them fall off onto the side. Those things, they're black. They never burn. They just sit there unburned. They don't, but you get them all together first, and you, you light that thing on fire, and you come back an hour later, and they're all just glowing red hot, and then you spread them out, you know? And I, and I noticed as we're doing this, there's a couple off to the side, and they just, they're just black, cold. And it brought back to my remembrance as I was thinking about my message for today and talking about unity. And this is a story I heard years ago of a pastor. He's got a guy in his church. And this guy, man, he's, he's not unified. You know, he got his feelings hurt, and he just sort of tapped out, and, and pretty soon he just stopped coming to church. And so the pastor one day, he decides, man, I'm going to go pay him a visit. Shows up at his house. It's winter. It's cold. They, the guy's got a fire going on in the fireplace. And so, you know, the guy greets him. He's there to pay him a you know, social call. And the, politely, the guy invites the pastor in, gets him a cup of coffee. They're sitting both with a cup of coffee there in front of the, the fire. And they're not saying a word, as guys do. I mean, you spend forever. Just sit together. They're not saying anything. They're just both watching this fire. And the pastor gets up, takes tongs from the, the hearth, and he, he grabs one of these coals. It's just burning red hot. And he sets it over in the corner of the hearth, you know. Puts the tongs back, goes back, and sits down. They're still not saying anything. They're just sitting there, drinking their coffee, watching the fire. And this coal that had burned, been burning so red hot, just slowly there, set aside from all the other coals, just began to get darker and darker and darker, and the redness of it just diminished, diminished. And when it seemed that it had gone completely dead, completely cold, and, and all, this guy got back up, this pastor, he takes the tongs, he takes that coal, he moves it back into the center of the coals. Instantaneously, it's burning red hot again. Well, with that, he puts the tongs back, thanks the guy for the visit, says, you know, I'm going to take off now. Guy walks him to the door, and at the door, the man says to, the, to his pastor, he says, Pastor, thanks for visiting me today. Thanks for the fiery sermon. I'll see you in church next week. <laughs> Where are you at today is my question. As we talk about unity and our needfulness, man, we need one another. And we need to be a body of believers that, that loves Jesus a ton and loves one another with the same love, the same affection. That we're going to love one another to tell each other the truth. The Bible says it's an enemy that multiplies kisses, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. And that we, we stand ready just to, to love one another, to encourage one another, to build one another up. Are you on fire today in unity and with those who are burning for Jesus? Or maybe today, are you that cold, dead ember that's off by yourself? Somebody made you mad or you didn't get your way? Which one are you?